All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Okay, you guys, on the line, I've got Ted Snyder, regular writer for antiwar.com. Welcome back to the show, Ted. How you doing? Thanks, Scott. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Appreciate you joining good. us today. Man, uh, there's a lot going on with this Ukraine war, and you write so much good stuff about it. Let's start with um, the uh, story about Angela Merkel. Yeah. And for that matter, Francois Holland as well. Yeah. Uh, telling the European press that the Minsk two deal, I guess Minsk one and Minsk two of mm -hmm. 2014 and 15, mm -hmm. that they were essentially hoaxes, that they never meant to implement a peace deal. They were just trying to buy more time for America to build up Ukraine's armed forces before the war got back started again. What do you yeah. make of that? You know, I, th I think the ramifications that are huge, and I think, like you said, so much has happened so fast since then. It didn't get, the story didn't get the shelf life to get the attention it deserves. But this is a major story, Scott, because it, it totally rewrites history if it's true. Um, and if it's not true, it's it's equally significant for its consequences. So I think I think the big story here is, um, which we'll, and we, you know, we'll talk about, is the, the consequences of what Merkel said, whether she's telling the truth or not, because some people think she's not. Um, and I think the second big story is that this is much bigger than Angela Merkel, because although you alluded to it, Scott, almost nobody else has. Um, it wasn't just Merkel. There were there were three parties involved in the in the negotiations. The the um, Ukrainian president at the time, Pyotr Poroshenko, um, German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Francois Hollande. And every single one of them, not just Merkel, but every single one of Putin's interlocutors have come out in a short period of time and said that it was a it was a trick. So this isn't just Merkel. This is way, way bigger than Merkel. This is everyone. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, so tell me a little bit about what you're saying about people not believing her. I'm not sure I do, actually. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things here. Um, the first is that she's never said this before. Um, she, she's never said something like this before. There's nothing in the historical record up to now to indicate that's what happened. It, it seems to have been a genuine thing. I think Zelensky thought it was a genuine thing. I think Putin thought it was a genuine thing. So there, there have been some fairly insightful commentators who have suggested that Merkel is simply rewriting history now for, because it, 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 it looks so bad that the results that she tried to negotiate a settlement ends up in a war. And because it's become so politically incorrect to say that you negotiate or talk to Putin, that what Merkel is really doing is, is under pressure going back in this sort of um, Orwellian rewriting of the past. Um, she's just recasting the story because it looks so bad on her. So, so there, there is this theory that, that there's really no truth to what Merkel saying. But Scott, I think the important thing about that is that is that it doesn't matter because if what Merkel's saying is true, then that means that Europe and the West never intended for there to be a diplomatic solution 
to what was already a huge problem in the Donbass. It, it means that they were lying to Putin and making him believe there was a diplomatic solution so that they could lull him into a peace long enough to build Ukraine up for what was always intended to be a military solution to the Donbass. That's huge because that's one of the major causes that led to the to the current war. We can talk about that more if you want to. But if what Merkel's saying is not true, it would sound like, okay, then it doesn't matter. It's just not true. But it matters a lot because in 2014, when Putin annexed Crimea, he had actually he was actually acting under permission by the Russian parliament, not just to take Crimea, but to take all of the Donbass. And Putin didn't. He, he restrained himself. It's unpopular to say that Putin was a restrainer, but he restrained himself. And he sincerely seems to have believed that there was a way to solve the problem by keeping the Donbass in Ukraine by granting an autonomy. He seems to have continued to believe that right up almost to the last minute before the war. And the thing that's important about that, Scott, is that hardliners in Russia for eight years now have been highly critical of Putin. And what they've charged him with is that you could have solved this whole problem if you'd taken the Donbass in 2014. And you could have, because the people in the Donbass had voted, they wanted to follow Crimea back to Russia. Like the people in Donbass wanted to be part of Russia. You had a, a, a reason to do it because the ethnic Russians were being um, treated very badly in the region. So you had a reason to do it. They wanted you to do it. And you certainly had the military capability to do it. It would have been easy then, right? So they said, you could have taken Donbass. You blew it. You trusted Germany and France that they were sincere about Donbass. And you were naive to trust Germany and France. You never should have. And the problem with this, Scott, is that if Angela Merkel is is telling the truth, then they were right all along. And if she's not telling the truth, then then what she's done now is destroyed any last confidence that Putin could have in 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 trusting what anybody's saying. So this is why, you know, Putin on New Year's Eve, he gives a speech to the nation and he says that for ages and ages now, the West has been telling us that they want to solve the Donbass peacefully. But really, they've been talking about, about well, his quote is the West lied to us about peace while preparing for aggression. And today, here's the thing. They no longer hesitate to openly admit it. He's referring to Merkel, like openly telling this this right. lie and completely destroying the credibility. So if it's not true, um, then then it's equally serious because it's 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 substantiated and reinforced the Russian belief that they can't trust the West. Um, it's just it's a nightmare scenario either way and so it's it's really it doesn't matter whether she's telling the truth or not telling the truth if she's if she's telling the truth it rewrites the history if she's if she's not telling the truth then you know it, it destroys uh, the trust and gives gives putin no reason to trust the the western negotiations now man that's really something else and as you said yeah with holland and poroshenko saying the same thing that yeah it was all essentially just a scam uh, well, it's funny. I'm going back to like at the time Merkel and Holland came to D.C. to it was reported ask permission, essentially, from the world emperor Barack Obama in person. She didn't just call him. She got on a plane and she came here and she said to him, listen, I'm going to Minsk and I'm hammering out a peace deal here. This has gone on long enough. This is November 2014. 
And yep. Obama said, okay, lady, <clears throat> fine, go ahead. Right? Um, that was the narrative at the time. And, you know, I guess it's possible that he said, okay, but it's all just a scam. We don't really mean it. Except that his policy was to not arm the Ukrainian government because he was afraid of what an escalation that would cause in the war yeah. and and afraid of what the Azov battalion might do with weapons that he gave them. Um, and so it seems to me like, you know, it, they probably are lying, right? I think at the time it, it made more sense that they really were trying to end yeah. the war. I mean, they went back a couple of months later in, in February of 15 when Minsk one wasn't good enough and they needed to tinker with it and make it better and I get you, better I, concessions. I, I agree with you, Scott, and I've, I've always thought it was, it was sincere. And, and I do think, you know, when Zelensky got elected on a promise to implement Minsk, I think he at first was acting like he thought it was sincere too. But Agree, the agree. Host, yeah, I mean, he you know, won the, with a, a, a great deal of support in the East because he promised peace. He did. And, and, and when he got elected, his, his comments were all about continuing to do that at first. But, but Scott, the American rule is really complicated because the U.S. didn't want to broker mints. They stepped back and they let, they let Germany and, and France broker mints. But the, the U.S. and the U.N. both agreed to mints. But, right. but, you know, there are reports that, that the U.S. was advising Zelensky to, to not implement Minsk, like they actually directly told him, "Don't implement it." There's reports of that. I can't confirm that, but there's reports that they directly told him not to implement it. Indirectly, they discouraged Minsk because right after the signing of Minsk, they started flooding defensive weapons into Ukraine. So they say on the one hand, well, we not exactly. I mean, I don't think they started putting the weapons in until seventeen. I don't think Obama did. Obama gave them Humvees and boots and MREs and stuff, right? Trainers, right. but right. But but there's stuff going in suggesting that you're not committed to a completely diplomatic solution. But then it gets worse. And, and you, we've talked about this before. And I know you know this stuff really, really well, that that when Zelensky did get elected on this promise to bring in Minsk, he, you know, Poroshenko had already said, and we still need to talk about what Poroshenko and, and Francois Hollande said, because it's important and it's gotten ignored. You know, the Francois Hollande story got reported heavily in Ukraine and Russia but I can't find it in the Western media anywhere. When I try to Google that story, I still can't find it anywhere. Like no one paid attention. So we still need to talk about that. But when Zelensky came in and he wanted to implement Minsk, he, he faced enormous pressure at home not to do it. And Poroshenko had said earlier than even in the recent interviews, um, Pyotr Poroshenko had said that I signed Minsk, but I knew it would never get implemented. Because he said, I knew the political pressure in Ukraine would never let me implement. That was the first hint that, that it was a deception. He said, I knew it would never happen. And the, the, the nationalist pressure on Zelensky was so intense. I mean, according to some reports, it, it might have even been mortally intense that, that you don't sign Minsk. And it was very, very clear that Zelensky could not act on his election promise to implement Minsk unless he got U.S. support. Because it wasn't going to happen in the Ukraine without the U.S. pushing. And right. the U.S. did nothing to push it. They did nothing. So, so even though they accepted Minsk, they never acted in a way that, that, that suggested that they were trying to get Minsk implemented. Right. It was a massive failure on the states' fault not to just back Zelensky 
in 2019 and, and forced the signing of Minsk. And, and probably, probably none of this would have happened if the states had pressured Zelensky to, I mean, Zelensky in a way, Ted, pressure. what you're saying is this whole argument is academic because whether the French or the Germans ever meant it, the Americans never did. If, if, if they ever meant it, they never acted like they meant it. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I just read a piece last night in uh, researching for the book from Samuel Charup from the Rand Corporation from mm-hmm. November of 21 <clears throat> in foreign mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when the crisis is first starting, the, the military yeah. buildup is going on and the Washington Post is already reporting that the CIA says Russia is about to invade and all this. And Charup says in there straight up, look, America's never pressured the Ukrainian government to implement Minsk too. And they've been very reluctant yeah. to implement it for the following reasons. But now is time that we begin to pressure them to tell them to implement mm-hmm. it because that's yeah. the only way we're going to avoid war here. Just warning the Russians that they yeah. better not is not going to be enough to stop the and, war. And Scott, this, this wasn't just Rand. Um, two weeks before the war, I forget the exact days, February 12th and 13th, something like that. Mm-hmm. Less than two weeks before the war, Putin was on the phone with with um, Macron in France and Schultz in Germany, and he was saying to them, "Put pressure on Ukraine to sign Minsk. This is the only solution." It, well, it they even had one more meeting in February, right? They they did, and and so this is like up to the last minute. This was this was this was not just like academic opinion that the states needs to pressure it. This was Putin on the eve of the war still saying, pressure Ukraine to sign Minsk. This is the solution. Um, And it was the solution. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. The audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history, real economics, real education. And the importance of the Cherup thing is that here's the guy from Rand saying, we have never, we, the U.S., has never pressured Ukraine to implement the deal, and therefore they haven't because they don't want to. And so he's really confirming what you're saying there. If Even if we don't know that they explicitly told Ukraine not to implement it. Here we got the guy from Rand saying, well, we sure as hell never told them to implement it. Yeah. And if you if you look at sort of the the academic record, you look at what, you know, scholars are writing about Minsk, you know, it is really clear that that 
the U.S. didn't pressure Ukraine to sign Minsk and that that is what Zelensky needed. And I don't want to portray Zelensky's like that they need to pressure Zelensky. Zelensky was willing to sign Minsk. He needed U.S. support to sign Minsk to, to counter Ukrainian pressure not to sign it. Or to right? implement so, it, you mean? To implement it. Yes, yeah. sorry, not to sign it. Um, so, so that's all. That's what was needed, right? Um, so, I mean, and it, and, it, and it could have happened and it probably would have solved the problem. And now you get this sort of um, very short window of time now where all these signatories to Minsk are coming forward and saying that, you know, that it was a that it was a trick. Um, so so you get you get Merkel and um, what, what she what she actually is, is saying is that um, she she says I used Minsk. Um, during this time to get stronger, as you can see today, like like she says that the that the whole purpose of Minsk was really um, a deception to to lull Russia into peace so that they could build up the the um, the Ukrainian forces. And then and then Poroshenko around the same time, he goes all over the place giving interviews to the media. And, and he says, I'm quoting him, our, our goal was to first stop the threat or at least to delay the war to secure eight years to restore economic growth and create a powerful armed forces. Like that was, he doesn't say that that was the effect of Minsk, Scott. He says that was the intent of Minsk. Right. Right. And then, and then a couple of days later, then, then, um, then um, Merkel, Francois Hollande goes, and he gives an interview to the Kiev independent, which just doesn't get picked up. Now, just to set the context for a bit, Angela Merkel was the main force behind the, the Minsk agreements. Francois Hollande was kind of her sidekick, her assistant. Like she was the driving force. He was the second one. Um, so these these are the two people in Europe who are who are negotiating this deal with with Russia and Ukraine. And so the Kiev Independent, this is a Ukrainian newspaper, right? In an interview, asks Francois Hollande straight up, "Do this?" And I'm quoting: "Do you believe that the negotiations in Minsk were intended to delay Russian advances in Ukraine?" He says, as as Angela Merkel has suggested in a recent interview, and Francois Hollande says, yes, Angela Merkel is right on this point. He comes he comes straight out and says that again, not there, but the intent of Minsk was to deceive Putin. So so what's going on? Like, why do all three of them go public saying this? Is is it not true? Is it just to sort of rewrite the past so that they don't look bad? Is it true? Either way, it's this nightmare scenario that that either rewrites history of the cause of the war or shatters Russian trust in the ability to talk to the West. Now, in a war like this, which hopefully is going to eventually end in, in negotiations to end this stupid thing, the last thing you want to do is give Putin a reason not to trust negotiations with the West. So why would you stand up before negotiations to end this horrible war and say... Yep. You can't trust us to negotiate because he lied to you last time. So right, look, I mean that's the key, right? It's, it's a nightmare. Yeah, look, it's it, it. This is simple public choice theory economics, right? Where there is no national interest. There's just the interest of Angela Merkel, the individual human person who at that time was in charge of Germany, and so right now it's in her individual interest to not look like a sucker who negotiated with Putin and let Putin walk all over her. So she has to pretend that she walked all over him. And so if that means that this undermines the next five decades of diplomacy between the rest of Europe and Russia, fine. Right. And Scott, that's that, her that's, needs right now. 
And that's that's precisely why this is a big story, whether she's telling the truth or not. Because if she is telling the truth, it, it rewrites the whole history saying that this war was inevitable because the West was always gearing up for a military solution in, in the Donbass. And if it's not true, then you've undermined the, the chances of negotiating an end to the war because you've just straight up told Putin, you can't trust us to negotiate with us. So, so whether this co- helped cause the war, her telling the truth, or helps to not be able to stop the war, her lying, it's a nightmare. Yeah. And then for Francois Hollande and Pyotr Poroshenko to come out and say the same thing at the same time in this, what almost seems orchestrated, um, is amazing. Yeah. So this is this and is a very true. big story. Yeah. You know, it's important, too, to bring up here that, uh, you know, I don't know how sincere Poroshenko ever was. Uh, you know, I guess it would depend on the circumstances. But we know that Zelensky ran on peace and originally tried when he came into power, as you mentioned there, he made some moves. He did like a prisoner swap and was trying to have some talks. But right after he was sworn in, I believe the first week after he was sworn in, um, Andre, I think it's Andre Beletsky, the founder of the Azov Battalion, said, look, if this guy tries to negotiate a peace with the East, we'll kill him. Mm-hmm. He'll hang from a lamppost on the main mm-hmm. drag in Kiev. Mm-hmm. And... You know, even the New York Times said, hey, that's a credible threat. These guys have overthrown the government twice now. They can't, I mean, right? Like, this is not just some guy spouting off about we will get our revenge someday, boy, like in Brandenburg. This is a credible threat to murder the president if he tries to negotiate peace. And so that's why Stephen Cohen, the Russia expert, said mm-hmm. that if the Kiev government is going to ever implement Minsk it's going to one need to be pressured by the United States mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. two they're going to need help from the United States yep. to round yep. up Bolesky and the worst of these Nazis to protect the president's life so mm-hmm. that he can try and to you know, implement Scott, the deal and that's the situation that this guy is in and then what do the Americans yep. do the Americans were like no we agree with Bolesky yeah they walk away you know you know some people have some people have said that Stephen Cohen was wrong about those death threats but there are you can actually there are oh there's plenty of them i'm writing a book about it i got i got a full list you know there there are interviews where you can it seems to me you can clearly hear them saying to him that that he's he's risking his life if he goes forward with minsk but even if that wasn't true which i believe it is but even if it wasn't true i don't think any serious scholar doubts that that the the pressure that the nationalists put on on Zelensky not to sign was massive. That well, right, was, and look, there even was if no way, even he if couldn't he couldn't do it without U.S. support, right? And, look, and no even if they weren't threatening to kill him, he couldn't implement Minsk if they no. weren't willing to go along. When there's still these independent militias who can continue to fight on their own orders. And this is the significance of of Poroshenko's statement. Not only that that he also says Minsk was a deception. But Poroshenko, who, by the way, keep in mind, was also elected on a platform of making peace with Russia, right? He was he was also elected on that platform. Um, but but he said this will never be signed because the forces in Ukraine, and he meant the national forces, would would never allow it to be signed. So right. I don't think anyone disputes the fact that Zelensky could not make good on his campaign promise to implement Minsk unless the U.S. supported him. And they left him to hang. They did nothing to support him. So when he left the path of diplomacy and said, we're going to retake Crimea, um, you know, even militarily and completely abandoned the whole 
peace promise that he'd said he would do. Um, that was that was at least in part because the U.S. didn't support him at all on the you know on the on the rails to peace. And when he got derailed, they did nothing to push him back on. And neither did Europe. Nobody did. Um, and and so you know and and that that le- that leads to the events of today. It's so avoidable. You know, I don't know whether Minsk was the perfect solution or not, but it was it was the best and really only solution to the problem at the time. And, you know, really good scholars have said that had Minsk been signed, um, Jack Matlock said recently that if mm-hmm. Minsk had been signed, um, this war almost definitely would never have happened. Yeah. Um, now, um, well, I think that's true, too. I had a great talk with David Swanson the other day about mm-hmm. alternatives that Russia had besides mm-hmm. invasion. And mm-hmm. they all basically centered around finding a peaceful solution to the problem of the Donbass because, you know, NATO expansion and potential anti-missile missiles being deployed and all of those. Mm-hmm. That was the future anyway. The real mm-hmm. crisis was the unending violence in the Donbass. And mm-hmm. so if they had come up with a solution for that, bringing in peacekeepers uh, from a third party nation, this kind of thing, uh, that could have prevented the entire war if they look really I, I i think and i've argued this before um i think that the that the it's, it's hard it's so hard to be in putin's head right everyone wants to guess what putin was thinking and i think the only thing you can do is look at the historical record you can only look at what people actually said yeah, he's been and, in power and, for 22 and, years 23 years yeah, yeah and there's been no there's been no secret about the progression of of Putin's comments and Putin's, I don't want to say thoughts, but what he's, what he said. And I, I think that that historical record shows that, that Putin's major concern was that Ukraine would be admitted into NATO. And then as a NATO power armed with article five would then make a military solution, a military attack into the Donbass and Crimea. And because of article five, engage Russia in an all-out war with NATO. I think on the eve of this war, those were the two things in Putin's head. They're going to join NATO, or they could join NATO. They're going to attack the Donbass. What if both of those things happen? Right. If they attack the Donbass and they're in NATO, we're in a NATO war, right? Yep. So what needed to be addressed was both of those. But at least in the immediate situation, address one of them, right? So, so if you had done Minsk, if you'd taken that out, that would have been a that would have been a help. It would have prevented this war. It wouldn't have solved the problem forever. Putin would have still needed some kind of guarantee that Ukraine wasn't going to join NATO. And it couldn't be a verbal guarantee because because the West had completely broken its verbal promises for NATO not to expand these. It, it, and he was very clear about this. He was very clear that it has to be a written legal guarantee this time. There's this great moment where Putin turns to Lavrov. It's on TV to Sergei Lavrov, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and he just says, "He says, he says, we need to get written guarantees on this now." And he said in a speech, he said in a the speech, they have to be written because we were deceived about verbal promises not to advance east. So, so it it had to be written. And those were the you know the security um, proposals that Putin gave to the states and NATO, you know, just before the war. That's what they were, you know, that's one of the things they were saying is we need. We need written guarantees that Ukraine won't join NATO, that NATO won't flood Ukraine with weapons. Um, and he needed a solution to the, the Minsk Accords. All right. Now, listen, and, man, we're almost out of time, Ted. But yeah. can you give me just a minute or two on the escalation of the tanks and yeah, what yeah. you write here about the possible window for negotiation and whether we might have missed it? 
Yeah, I think Scott, there's so much to say there. I wish we had we had it like an hour for this. But yeah, I think that I think that, you know, a little while ago, I think it was November when when Ukraine had made some advances. Um, how strategically real those were or not is another story. But but the the many experts in the West, including military experts in the West, were starting to talk about this moment where Ukraine's probably in the best position on the battlefield they can get into. They called it an inflection point, that we've reached this moment where we've advanced, Ukraine's advanced as far as they can go. This might be the moment to negotiate because Biden has always said our purpose is to put Ukraine in a position on the battlefield, to put them in the strongest position at the negotiating table. And here were experts, including top American generals, saying this is that moment where the strongest point in the negotiating table. And and at that point, they had they had two choices. They could have forced negotiations, or they could say, if Ukraine can't get any further than the weapons they have, we're going to give them bigger weapons. And so unfortunately, they they missed that window, and they gave bigger. They're they're giving bigger weapons now. This is really really complicated because. There is also a story that came out in the Washington Post that that really no one, I thought everyone would jump on it. No one did. When when Burns went to Kiev to talk to Zelensky, the newspaper reports were all on. He's telling them what the states thinks Russia's military plans are. That's not a story, Scott. Everybody knows the states has been giving Ukraine intelligence on Russian plans. The story was that, according to the Washington Post, what was really utmost on Zelensky's mind is how much longer can I count on flow of weapons into Ukraine? And apparently the message Burns gave him, according to the Washington Post, is that this isn't going to go on forever. And they say, the Post says that their sources told them that Zelensky walked away thinking <clears throat> that he thinks that this current huge batch is happening now. He can count on for a while, but can't count on another one after. So then you get this idea that that here's the new window, right? That there's that there's one more push. So the U.S., you know, sends all these weapons in. But the U.S. is also saying quietly, and by the way, so is Kiev, although no one talks about this. This came out in the, you know, the, I think it was, uh, was it David Ignatius? I think maybe during the posting too, but like really mainstream media, that Kiev also thinks they can't take Crimea. So So you give them these tanks and weapons and stuff, to make a push on Crimea, mm -hmm. but knowing you can't really conquer it, but if you can scare the Russians to think Crimea is vulnerable, then maybe you've got this new position that Ukraine you can be in a stronger position on the negotiating table. Boy, these Democrats there. are just geniuses with their fourth-dimensional chess. You're blowing my mind here. Sorry, go ahead. Well, look what they're doing with the tanks now. I mean, I, I just wrote a piece. It's not out yet on anti-war, um, but I'm, I'm just writing a piece on 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 the tanks and. You know, it seems that the states is is promising tanks that they know aren't going to get there on time to to fight in this war. There's all kinds of. Do they think that the Russians point. don't read the post? Well, I don't know. You know, I was talking. They kind of give one, away their whole game all the time. You know, I was talking. I was talking to one Russian scholar who who said to me, "Do the papers not notice these contradictions, or are they codes for like analysts in Russia to to pick up? Are they?" Look, is it possible? I don't know, Scott. I'm just totally winging it here. I should talk to you about this after we're not on the air. Is it, is it possible that the States wants Russia to know, yeah, we're sending these tanks because it was the only way to get Europe to send the tanks, but don't worry, they're never really going to get there. We're not really... Right. We're it's not just really like when Biden chastised Lloyd Austin for saying we're trying to weaken Russia. 
because mm-hmm. uh, that's going too far. But then in the Washington Post, another week or two later, they said, no, nah, that is still the policy, though. We just had to say that. Well, mm-hmm. didn't obviously Biden authorized him to say that, too, because the walk back was too far and it made yeah. him look like a wimp. So now he had to walk it forward again. But the the yeah. Russians are reading this, too, dude. Ew. Yeah. And that, and Scott, that makes whatever America's intents are. That makes this escalation so dangerous, so dangerous because they're 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 pushing these weapons so so far and and the only reason they're doing it they keep saying is that putin hasn't used a nuclear weapon yet so we don't really believe that he's going to what a stupid gamble to take first of all of course he hasn't used a nuclear weapon yet because you haven't crossed the threshold of where russia would use a nuclear weapon which is the same as the states only not as bad as the states an, an existential threat in their country but if they keep sending in these weapons that can challenge crimea and now they're talking about jets planes (laughs) Um, they're pushing and pushing and pushing. So whether they're serious about it, the escalation is so, so dangerous. Mm -hmm. I suspect the purpose of all this really is just to advance the Ukraine far enough to, that they think they can scare Russia into, into more negotiations. Um, I I think there's a little bit of a silver lining, right? That they're thinking that they're essentially admitting that Millie is right. We're not going to dislodge the Russians here. We're they're going to lose the Donbass. The only question is when we negotiate that fact and whether they get Zaporozhia and Kherson too. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I think you know the 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 escalation now is very dangerous. And there's a couple of really interesting articles out this morning about Ukraine already asking for planes now. But yeah. I you know, I saw the, a thing that said Poland gave them a couple of MIGs. I don't know if that's true. That was I don't yesterday. know. Yeah. I, I, I haven't Listen, seen that. I'm so sorry, man. I, I really wish we could go on for an hour, but I got yeah, another one that I'm already late for. Topic. We could we could do another hour on the on the on this whole Yeah, we need to do this more but, often, I think. Yeah. Um, but listen, everybody read Ted Snyder, man. He's at antiwar.com. And as you can tell, on top of every bit of this for us. Thank you so much, Ted. Thanks, Scott. It was great talking to you. The Scott Horton Show and Antiwar Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.